The on-sale bar is a limitation on patentability. Not all sales, however, preclude patent protection. Finnegan partners Dory Hines and Aaron Summers join us now to provide an overview of the on-sale bar, how the AIA may have changed that bar, and to discuss a recent case that may provide more flexibility for companies to develop their technology with the help of external partners. Aaron, can you provide a brief overview of the on-sale bar prior to the America Invents Act? So the on-sale bar is really rooted in our English heritage. And across the pond years ago, under the common law of England, letters patents were unavailable for protection if the articles that they protected were already in public commerce at the time of the application for the patent. And this concept was immediately embodied in, in our U.S. patent laws when they were first passed here in the United States. Over time, the statutory language relating to the on-sale bar has changed, for example, providing a little more flexibility with respect to a grace period for a product's commercialization before the filing for a patent application, and that grace period was later and most recently is shortened to one-year grace period. The policies undergirding the on-sale bar persist even today, and these include encouraging prompt disclosure of inventions to the public, precluding commercialization of a patented invention for longer than the statutory term, prohibiting the withdrawal of inventions from the public domain that the public has already started buying and come to believe are freely available for them. One of the other policies is the opportunity to give an inventor a reasonable period of time to determine whether her invention will be commercially worthwhile in the marketplace. So just before the AIA was enacted, the relevant section of the statute, which is Section 102B, precluded patent protection if the invention was on sale in this country, in the United States, more than one year before the date of application for a patent in the United States. And since the 90s, courts have employed a two-part test dictated by the Supreme Court in a case called Fast v. Wells Electronics to determine whether such a patent invalidating sale had occurred. So the FAF test is whether the claimed invention was the subject for a commercial offer for sale and whether it was ready for patenting. If both answered yes to both of these questions, then a court may find that a patent was on sale more than one year in advance of the filing of the application, and thus no patent is available for it. The FAF court in its ruling focused really on the second part of that test, but it noted that the first prong to be met must be a commercial offer for sale, and that patentee has the ability to control when that first commercial sale occurs. With respect to the second part of the test, the Supreme Court concluded in FAF that the invention is ready for patenting when it is either reduced to practice or in everyday language when it's made, or if there is a sufficiently detailed disclosure either in a marketing brochure or a product spec or something like that that would have enabled somebody to actually make the patented invention at the time. Dory, how did the AIA modify the on-sale bar? Well, the AIA changed the on-sale bar into pretty fundamental ways, geographically and also as to the type of sale. With respect to geographically, under the old statute, 102B, that precluded patent protection for an invention that was on sale in this country. That portion, the in this country, has been removed under the AIA. So as a result, there's no longer any geographical limitation on where a sale has to take place in order for it to be 
a barring event. The on-sale can occur anywhere in the world. So in that respect, the AIA has made the on-sale bar more expansive. In another respect, though, the AIA has made the on-sale bar more restrictive, and that is with respect to the type of sale. Under the new statute, the on-sale bar is directed to whether an invention is on sale or otherwise available to the public. Both the Patent Office and the courts looking at this issue have stated that that portion of the new statute, otherwise available to the public, modifies the sale. What that means is, for purposes of an on-sale bar under the AIA, the sale has to be a public sale. So no longer can a secret sale be an on-sale barring event. Secret sales that would have triggered an on-sale bar if they happened in the United States no longer are an on-sale bar under the AIA. So in that respect, the AIA has made the on-sale bar more restrictive. Now, the contours of what is a public sale and what is a secret sale, those are still going to be worked out by the courts, but this specific distinction that had not previously existed when considering the on-sale bar is now an important factor to consider when looking at this issue. And Dory, the recent case, the medicines company, V. Haspira, has brought aspects of the on-sale bar into question. Can you provide an overview of this case? The medicines company case that specifically looked at whether a transaction between a patentee and its supplier raised the on-sale bar. So let's look first at some of the facts of that case. There, the patentee, the medicines company, or TMC, it's a small branded pharmaceutical company, and it markets a product, Angiomax, which is a blood thinner. Now, TMC, as a small company, does not have facilities in-house to prepare a lyophilized form of the drug. As a result, it uses a contract research organization, a CRO, to perform that processing for it. So it takes some of its processing and moves it to a third party. And that was really significant. There, the CRO formulated the protein for sale and had been doing that for quite a while. During that process, TMC, the patentee, and the CRO, they identified some issues with an impurity in the product, and they worked on a new process to reduce that impurity, and that was the subject of the patent protection. So after developing the process, but before the product was completely validated, the contract research organization, they made three batches of Angiomax. They all worked within the scope of what was ultimately patented in the scope of those claims. Those batches, though, they weren't commercially sold to the public, but there was a sales activity between TMC and the contract research organization. In fact, TMC contracted with the research organization to make those batches of Angiomax, basically to test the process, to see if it worked, and to see what product came out of it. TMC paid the contract research organization. However, it was significantly less than the market value of the product. Also significant, title to the product never transferred. The product always remained the possession of and owned by the patentee. In addition, there were confidentiality requirements between TMC 
and the Contract Research Organization. So the district court looked at all of these facts after TMC had asserted its patent against someone else, and an on-sale bar was alleged. The district court looked at all these facts and said that the transaction between TMC and CRO, it wasn't a commercial sale. Therefore, there was no on-sale bar. So that went up on appeal to the Federal Circuit. And the Federal Circuit reversed and said there was a commercial transaction between TMC and its supplier. And the results of that commercial transaction between those companies, there was some benefit to TMC as a result of that commercial transaction, and that was an on-sale bar event. So TMC asked the whole Federal Circuit and bank to consider that issue, and the Federal Circuit did. It was quite interesting. In a unanimous decision from the Federal Circuit, the M-Bank court reversed the panel, meaning, somewhat interestingly, that some of the judges reversed themselves and found there was no on-sale bar. Now, in doing that, the Federal Circuit M-Bank looked particularly at what Aaron mentioned earlier, the FAF case, and the first prong of the FAF case, whether there was a commercial sale. And they found that there was not. And some of the factors that the court looked at and said favored no on-sale bar in this situation was that the invention itself was not sold. The invention was to the product, and the patent covered that product. But what the contract research organization did for the patentee was to sell its manufacturing services. So that was a difference that the Federal Circuit found significant. In addition, title to the product didn't transfer, there were confidentiality provisions, and the patentee at all times maintained control over the product. That is, there was no release of that product to the public. As a result, there was no commercial on-sale bar that would preclude patent protection. So you can see from this, the on-sale bar under the, the Federal Circuit's consideration of it is a really highly factual inquiry. It has been before, and nothing about that has changed. In this circumstance, however, although there was some commercial activity between the patentee and its contracting party, the party it contracted with, there was no commercial sale or offer for sale under the patent statute. One significant conclusion from this case for the pharmaceutical industry is that stockpiling may not be a commercial endeavor that would preclude patent protection. And in fact, the result of the manufacturer by the contract manufacturer for TMC was that TMC had a stockpile of product available to it before the critical date, before the 102B barring date. And that was okay because the product was not released to the public, that stockpiling was all right. And finally, Aaron, what should businesses do to ensure they're on the right side of the on-sale bar? There are several tasks that businesses can implement to better monitor and consider whether there is any on-sale activity that would present a problem with respect to the on-sale bar. First, it's important for researchers in an organization to be communicating with their business people and IP people, intellectual property advisors, to ensure that there's communication both ways as far as who is doing what and when. 
And that includes monitoring for inventions early and often. And as soon as researchers believe that they have something that is inventive, they should be communicating with their IP professionals to ensure that there's no sales activity occurring before patent applications are filed. It's also important to be cognizant about having sufficient enablement support. And what that means is another patentability requirement that you need to have enough information in a, in a patent application. And sometimes the testing is important, but to get enough information to put in your patent application may delay the process a little bit. And so taking into account those types of activities is helpful and important for companies. In the TMC case in particular, this was a situation where there was an improvement that had been made along the line. They were having some trouble with their commercial process and work to develop an innovative solution to that process. And so it's not just the first invention that's important to consider from a sales perspective, but ongoing efforts with the company as well. And those types of subsequent development efforts should be documented just like the first inventive activity. For business people and IP people alike, it's good to closely monitor potential sales, any licensing that's going on, any interactions with contract research organizations or contract manufacturing organizations to determine what effect, if any, on yet-to-be-filed patent applications. And taking into account the factors that Dory mentioned earlier that the court focused on in the TMZ case, keep in mind the big three, confidentiality, control, and commercial value, and to make sure that they are acting within keeping things confidential with contract research organizations, for example, maintaining control and maybe even title of whatever the invention is, and then making sure that the commercial value is being considered and what's happening with each of those sales. Our guests have been Dory Hines and Aaron Summers, partners at Finnegan, one of the largest IP law firms in the world. For more commentary on intellectual property news and issues, to listen to other podcasts, and to receive additional information on the firm, please visit www.finnegan.com. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Finnegan.